0: Out There Media Group presents Out There Radio, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theories, counterculture, and the bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond Wiley and Austin Gandy.
1: Welcome to episode 52 of Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley.
0: And I'm Austin Gandy.
1: And uh, Austin, great great to be back for another episode. You know, uh, there was some consternation online as to us calling ourselves a weekly podcast and then not releasing a podcast the very second week that we were back in production. I'd say that's about par for the course, wouldn't you? Uh, people just have to
0: understand that sometimes forces beyond our control and even comprehension are going to interfere with the rigmarole of daylight. But we do our best.
1: So- we we really do. We fight through. <laughs> we, we fight <laughs> through computer failure. We fight through uh, jobs that we may or may not like. We fight through. I, I got a new laptop this week, by the way. We fight through this bloody Skype connection issue that we've been having with Austin for weeks. Uh, but we're we're here. Oh, It yes. is
0: a daily struggle.
1: Yes. So, <laughs> Austin, what? I don't know what we're going to do about this. Literally, every time I talk to you, it's like a phantom, right? I know. The ghost and comes this
0: is out. Isabel right I, here,
1: right? Right. All right. So maybe just try backing off six inches from that mic. Six inches? Oh, better. Better. Right. You're not overloading it now.
0: Okay. So if I just hold oh.
1: it right here. Oh, like a beautiful... Beautiful. So, anyway, I think I'm leaving that in because that's yeah. what we call. What, what do you call that, Austin? Radio, Radio gold? gold? Radio Gold. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> today we got Randall Carlson on. Atlanta's foremost esoteric, Freemasonic, earth changing, sacred ge- geometrician, archaeo astronomer par excellence. Austin, this guy. He's got you. He's in the running for a Southeast leading expert in the occult and esoteric sciences. He might have you beat. What do you say I, to that?
0: I beg to differ, sir. But but uh, he is certainly a, the foremost expert on sacred geometry. I would never dare to compete with that.
1: Well, I got to say, th- this guy blew my mind a couple of times in this interview. That doesn't usually happen. Like you know, I mean, I I don't like George Norieit, quote unquote. Where I just sort of softball you questions, like, but sometimes I'm more engaged than others. And with this one, I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm, I was glad I was glad to be doing season three, and it's good to have you back on the airways with me, Austin." Uh, There's been some questions. Where's Joe McFall? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want to address that right now. Joe's cool. He's in Atlanta and he'll be on future episodes when he's got some time. He's got a little baby to tend to. So uh but yeah, he says hello and he's been getting a lot of friend requests this past week or two for some reason and he really appreciates it. So um Austin, what's yes. been going on past two weeks since we've done an episode Infusion Festivals?
0: In Fusion Festivals. Good Lord, uh what event.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, not not bad. It was for the out there crew. Our first crack at a weekend camping event and Yeah, IRL,
0: our- as as you will.
1: Yeah, yeah, IRL, right? Like this, not an internet digital thing. It was actually a, a out in the woods camping hippie style kind of thing. We had a great time, Austin. You had a elaborate occult ish, as the Christians say, occult ish ritual planned. Uh, the son of a bitch got rained out, though.
0: It did. It did. It was. It was heartbreaking, really, um, because it was, it was a huge struggle trying to figure out. I mean, you you know Raymond, that I could you know whip together something really esoteric and bizarre uh, along the you know philemic Western esoteric kind of current, and just kind of do that in my sleep. I mean, we, with our mutual experience with the pagan student association on the University of Georgia campus, and And other experiences, I mean, we've we've basically cut our teeth deeply into the modern esoteric kind of world. But it was this sudden moment of like, well, what do you do for a bunch of people who are coming out from a more or less secular standpoint to the middle of the woods to listen to some DJs spin some music, listen to some jam bands kind of do their thing? And all of a sudden, you've got to do a ceremony, a ritual to kind of put some meaning into the whole weekend. Not that there wasn't emergent meaning from the event itself and all the activities of the people kind of participating in it. Um, But all of a sudden we had to figure out how do we weave this together into some kind of pageant. And I spent weeks and weeks constructing costumes and scripting, you know, various uh, speeches and and. Uh, putting together this slideshow that we'd be basically indoctrinating people into um, a particular symbol set. It was was convoluted. It was way over the top. And at the end of the day, it got rained out.
1: Well, all the more reason for our listeners to come to one of the future events that we're doing this fall, you can check it out on the events page at outthereradio.net. Uh, we've still got all of your bizarre accoutrement that we ordered from all over Amazon and the internet for these costumes and oh, prop we are pieces. ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So check that out in the future. Like I said, just click the events page. Uh, Austin, I think we're just going to go ahead and get into this interview with Randall Carlson. He really, uh, I know you couldn't make it out for this particular interview, but he really kicked it. And, uh, I am you know,
0: thrilled to hear it. I am really Really excited about this one.
1: Cool. And just so you know, uh, you know, when this interview is over, if you're thinking, God, I, I need to hear more of this guy, Randall Carlson. Well, I have also released, when I released this podcast today, the first episode of Out There Premium, which features a whole other hour with Randall Carlson, where he lets us in on the whole structure and experience of Freemasonry. He talks about archaeoastronomy. He talks about ca- catastrophism and earth changes as well. And the guy is really succinct and interesting, and and uh, a definite soliloquition. Is that is I just think I I think I just made up a word. Like,
0: you neologized.
1: Yeah, uh, like Mark Twain would. Uh, yeah, he's excellent at delivering a soliloquy, and that's what we've got is basically a series of. Three or four just jams that this guy does on, on these topics from his personal experiences. You're going to come away from it knowing more about Freemasonry and learning more about Freemasonry in about 40 minutes than you could if you read a whole books that are on the market right now. Like this is, I would really highly recommend it. Just click premium on outthereradio.net. It's a dollar. Hope you don't mind. Uh, Austin, anything and that go?
0: Where does that dollar go, Raymond? That goes st- straight into
1: our months. pockets, that's right, straight into the pockets of the <laughs> Giddy, that's right.
0: Um, Support your starving magicians.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, and your starving podcast producers, because I had to replace my flippin' laptop this week, so, yeah. anyway, uh, without, cheap. Yep. so enough of the begging, let's get into this <laughs> interview, we'll see yeah, ya. Yeah, it is baller. We're back here on Out There Radio, and today we're joined with our guest, Randall Carlson. How are you today, Randall?
2: I'm doing well today, Raymond.
1: Excellent. Well, it's great to have you on the on the phone. Randall, I've known you for a long time and have been fascinated with your work and with the stuff you've had going on over the past couple of years and with your depth of knowledge on so many different topics. You're the... Uh, Head of Sacred Geometry International, which we've uh, had a link to up this week on OutThereRadio.net. And uh, you've also spent years studying catastrophes that happened uh, in the both uh, close and distant pasts, uh, like earth-changing catastrophes, uh, like comets and things like that. And then you uh, are also a fairly eminent Freemason in Atlanta and... uh, Home Builder as well to top it off. So uh, there's a lot to talk to you about today. Uh, and so in this in the first segment or in our uh, free segment for this week, we're going to discuss the topics of sacred geometry and archaeoastronomy with you. So we posted a video uh, earlier this week trying to give people a preview of you in which you sort of answered the questions, what is sacred geometry? Can you, for those who missed that, kind of fill everybody in?
2: Well, sacred geometry is an ever-evolving concept. Uh, The definition has been quite fluid. It originally started out referring more specifically to the study of the geometry used by the medieval guilds in their design of ecclesiastical architecture. Uh, Probably the term first showed up around the 1920s or 30s, as far as I've been able to actually go back um, to find historical references to it. And it was used in a more or less limited context and it applied more precisely to several geometric schemes based upon uh, squares and triangles that were with uh, some pentagonal geometry that was utilized by the, the builders of the uh, great cathedrals. But the term has definitely evolved. It has broadened in its scope to include a, a, essentially a general scheme of geometry that unites many facets of, of the created world into a coherent whole. The geometries used by the ancient builders, as it turns out, were uh, could be seen in a sense as a subset of this greater system that we now recognize uh, had been utilized by master builders throughout the ages and pretty much around the world. We find it embedded in most of the great examples of of architecture, great architecture that one could come up with, going back to Egypt, going back to Samaria, uh, going back to Southeast Asia and the Indonesian temples of Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam. We find it being utilized by the Mayans. It's also manifest in the great art of the Renaissance, uh, what we find is a sense that um, geometry seems to be intrinsic to the to the human psyche, and whether or not the system was propagated as a, a a deliberate discipline or whether it was essentially revitalized just through accessing some deep layer of of human consciousness is is a question that has not been resolved. But what we now know is is that the roots of sacred geometry are in the natural order of things we find it in the living world the the biological world we find it in the astronomical realm and what seems to be so powerful about it is the fact that it is intrinsic to the whole manifested universe i think plato may have likened it to the the archetypal blueprint upon which the whole creation essentially was was designed uh so it's again the, the the definition of sacred geometry is it seems to be evolving. We've got a a, a new uh, a newer broader perspective on it now because we have so many scientific disciplines uh, at our disposal and also a, a much deeper and broader historical understanding. So what we're seeing is that sacred geometry appears to have been very prevalent throughout many cultures and held in high esteem and essentially went into decline uh, with the rise of scientific rationalism uh, and Newtonian physics, only to be revitalized again in the early part of the 20th century. And we find a number of interesting works, oh, in the period between the First and Second World Wars, where various aspects of sacred geometry are being recovered. I'll mention one in particular is the work of Jay Hambidge in his... Um, Discovery of Dynamic Symmetry, which is a, a principle that basically is it's a compositional p- principle that looks at the division of space into components such that the parts all relate to each other by a common uh, modulus, a common theme, if you will, a common geometric theme. And this was considered essentially to be the basis of harmony, that there was a special and rational connection between the parts of a composition and the whole of the composition. This was considered to be the basis of harmony. And Jay Hambidge's work was very important in the revitalization of this knowledge. Then you had the work of George Lesser that came along in the 40s and 50s, and he did extensive research into the geometric principles behind the great sacred structures of the Middle Ages, Uh, along with some of the Roman and Greek structures, and discovered that there was uh, the same mathematical and geometric principles that Jay Hambage had been uh, researching uh, a decade or two earlier. And then, of course, there was...
1: Sorry, uh, can you give us the names of some of their books, if you could?
2: Well, let's see. Some of the books. um, George Lesser did a two-volume set called... um, I think it was just called Sacred Geometry, Uh, as I'm, let's see, yeah, Sacred Geometry, I think uh, I can give you the title more specifically in about one second. Yeah, just essentially Sacred Geometry. It was two volumes that was published in the 1950s, yes, (laughs) Sacred Geometry, okay, Gothic Cathedrals and Sacred Geometry. I don't know if those those books are available anymore. I think they're quite scarce. Uh, I've not been able to find them. I, I've looked online. I may have run across copies of the books for astronomical sums of money. So that probably isn't one that one could readily get their hands on. There was another uh, two-volume set by a, um, a Danish uh, Freemason named Tans Bruns that was entitled um, The Secrets of Ancient Geometry and Its Use. And he did an elaborate development of the various geometric principles used by the ancient builders. Um, more recently, in work that would probably be available, <clears throat> would be the work of Keith Critchlow and John Michelle. Uh Keith Critchlow was a... I mean, he was an architectural historian in, in England, who, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, wrote several very wonderful books on um, principles of sacred geometry, uh, particularly, one of his focus was on the use of sacred geometry by uh, the designers of the Islamic mosques and the uh, the various Islamic patterns that were used, you know, in the in the classical period of of um, Islam. John Michel wrote a number of books, starting in the 1960s, coming up through the 1990s, dealing with sacred geometry, such as um, City of Revelation, The Dimensions of Paradise. Uh, and then there's been uh, the work of, um, of course, Buckminster Fuller, uh, of whom Keith Critchlow had been a student, um, who wrote his works on synergetics, which was not so much on the sacred tradition of geometry, but much of what he uncovered and synthesized in his two-volume set on sy- synergetics bears direct relevance to our understanding of geometry as a universal system. Uh, there have been a number of others. um, you know, there was a uh, an interesting work called Homage to Pythagoras that was a, sort of a collected work of uh, various articles uh, dealing with form, number, geometry, and architecture. Then there was a, um interesting little work, I believe it was from the 1940s, called The Geometry of Art and Life. Uh, I'm not sure how you ever, I've never really known how to pronounce the author's name. Matila Geica, I think is what it is. It's spelled G-H-Y-K-A. And that's a very useful work for somebody trying to get into the preliminaries of sacred geometry. We are going to be posting a, a, an extensive uh, bibliography and reading list on the sacred geometry website very soon, um, listing the books and to what extent they might be available. Um, Jay Hambidge's work was called The Elements of Dynamic Symmetry, and it has been republished by Dover Books. And I... I believe is probably still readily available. Uh, there's also one more I'll mention that uh, would be useful to somebody. Uh, is called Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son being spelled S-U-N, and it's by David Fiedler, subtitled Ancient Cosmology and Early Christian Symbolism, and he goes extensively into the use of geometry uh, as a symbolical system utilized by the early Christians. And he also gets into the, the Gematria, which was the sacred geometry of language, which is a, a key element of Kabbalistic studies. So those those are a few references that would probably be valuable to your listeners.
1: Well, thanks. I think you've given us a good survey of the field and sort of a good broad definition of what the concept of sacred geometry is and how it's kind of become a field since the mid-20th century, early to mid-20th century. Now. What, what I want to get into a little bit more before we move on to other topics is re- specifics. Give us a few specific sites and a, a few specific places where someone can look and see this concept of sacred geometry in the world. Because, you know, you look at any building and there's geometry, no matter where it's from. That's cross-cultural. What makes, what are the elements of the sacred geometry that is spread out throughout the world and throughout these cultures.
2: Okay, well, one of the things is, is that you know you, you, can, you can utilize sacred geometry as a patterning grid, as a system of proportioning, and you can derive a virtually infinite variety of, of expressions, of form, based upon similar or identical underlying patterns. Uh, so, for example, we find um, temple architecture in Egypt. Uh, probably the most salient example, uh, and one of the purest examples of this expression of sacred geometry on the planet would be the, the Great Pyramid on on the Giza Plateau. Which, you know, in a, in a phone conversation, of course, it's it's difficult to convey pictures and relationships. Uh, as effectively as actually looking at uh, photographs or diagrams and so on, and certainly in the case of geometry, being a, a visual art and science, um, you know, being able to actually perceive the images directly is is extremely important and valuable. But uh, in the Great Pyramid, we have a, a very unique expression of the relationship between pi, which is the relationship between the diameter of a circle and its circumference and phi, which is a, um, a relationship between the part and the whole such that um, uh, it's, it's what's known as the golden section, the divine proportion, divina proportioni, and, and so on. It um, essentially uh, is based upon the idea that if you take in its simplest ex- geometric expression a line and subdivide that line asymmetrically in such a way that the small part... Relates mathematically to the whole part exactly as it. I'm sorry. Let me back up. The small part relates to the large part as the large part does to the whole length of the line. And there's only one point of asymmetrical division that will create that relationship in a line, um, so that you have a consistent a proportionality constant uh, between the small part, the large part, and the whole, which is the sum of the two. Um, that relationship has been found in numerous different ways, in numerous different manifestations uh, by researchers over the decades. Uh, in some of the most remarkable uh, um, manifestations that one could imagine, it's expressly <coughs> embodied in the human proportion in human anatomy and the simplest way that one can actually see this is that if you hold your forearm up in front of your face bending your elbow at 90 degrees and hold your forearm out horizontal in front of your face and notice the length of your cubit which is the distance from your mid fingertip to your elbow comes from the latin cubitus, which means forearm you look at that cubit and you'll notice that um your wrist joint has a, um, a space in the joint called the space of desktop. And you can, if you feel around in your wrist joint, you'll feel a little hole. Uh, it's usually a little bit more over to the left side. You'll find that little hole, and it divides the wrist joint in that uh, divine proportion. So that if you took the distance from fingertip to your wrist joint as the small unit and from your wrist joint to the elbow as the large unit, the relationship from small to large is the same as the large to your whole cubit. So, so right there is a, uh, an embodiment of the, the golden section. <clears throat> and essentially is the, the basis for geometric harmony. Now, if you now take your forearm and rotate it so that it's vertical, and you now enlarge it proportionately to your height, what you'll discover then is that the fingertip would be the top of your head, your elbow would be the soles of your feet, and that space of desktop defining your wrist joint would be your navel. And um, so your, your whole height is divided into golden section by the position of your navel. Now, if you look at the human anatomy from the time of birth to the time of fully matured growth, what you'll see is that, Obviously, the proportions of a newborn infant are different than than the proportions of an adult. And if you actually measure a newborn infant, you'll discover that their navel divides their body in half. Well, as you grow, essentially what you're doing is you're growing into the golden proportion so that as you fully mature, those relationships are that you've seen in your in your full height divided by the navel, in the length of your cubit divided by your wrist joint, um, are manifested at literally in dozens and dozens of different ways throughout your body. Um, if you take, there, there have been studies by our, uh, historians of art that have looked at um, the proportions used by the great masters and have discovered um, that they, in many cases, deliberately utilized these proportions to set out a compositional grid that lies underneath the painting. There's also a um, studies have done anatomical studies. They've taken artist models and so forth and analyzed the position of the various facial features and so forth and have found that that they manifest these uh, the, the golden section. For example, if you take the if you were to, again referring using your own uh, forearm as a yardstick, if you were to create a rectangle such that its short side was the length from your fingertip to your wrist joint, its long side was from your wrist joint to your elbow. That rectangle is what we know or call the golden rectangle. And the golden rectangle can be found in many examples. For example, a golden rectangle perfectly frames the facade of the Parthenon. It also defines the, the, the width and depth uh, of the ca- of the canvas of many famous paintings. For example, da Vinci used it. It can be found in his painting of The Last Supper and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. But that rectangle, if you turn that rectangle vertically, so its long axis is, is vertical, you'll find that, it it defines the height-to-width ratio of of a human face. And so if you use the uh, human um, form as your yardstick, what you'll discover is everybody deviates slightly from geometric perfection. But you'll find that if you take a huge number of individuals and average their proportions, the more individuals you use, the closer you get to the geometric ideal, which is actually expressed numerically uh, as a, um, a non-repeating, non-terminating decimal: uh, 1.618033989. Three, dot 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 meaning it goes on forever, just like the the value of pi is irrational. It goes on forever, never repeats, and never terminates. Neither does the golden section, and the golden section can also be found. Um, as the limit of a numerical sequence called the Fibonacci series or Fibonacci sequence, where you take the sum of two consecutive numbers in the sequence and add them together, and they eventually, in their ratio, approach the golden section value as a limit. Uh, for example, you, taking this, the simplest numbers, if we took the, the number Here's how it works. You basically take any number in the series and it'll be the sum of the two preceding numbers. So starting out the series would go 1, the next number would be the sum of the two preceding which is 0 and 1, giving you 1, the next number would be the sum of the two preceding which is 1 plus 1, giving you 2, the next number would be then 1 plus 2 which is 3, the next number would be 2 plus 3 which is 5, the next one would be um, three plus five, which is eight, and so the system, so the series goes. Well, as you proceed and your numbers get ever larger, what you find is that the ratio of each number to its predecessor will approach the value of one point six one eight, uh, the golden section, as a limit. So. The bigger your numbers, the closer you're going to get to the geometrical ideal, <clears throat> and eventually, if you could make your numbers infinitely large, you would then hit the golden section with geometric perfection
1: i so, think you I think you just blew my mind like five times in that last soliloquy
2: There. well, I would hope that it was at least five times
1: so and this is just great and i and I've never had it explained to me so well what sacred geometry is. It always seems kind of fluffy when other people talk about it. So I, you know, I really appreciate you coming on now. Randall, you give classes in this. It's not just your website, Sacred Geometry International. You give classes here in the Atlanta area, Sacred Geometry Atlanta. Tell us a little about that.
2: Uh, well, I started doing classes, I think I did my first class in 1980 uh, after I'd been studying the subject of sacred geometry for about six or seven years. I think I first discovered it in 1973. Summer of 1973 actually is when I first discovered sacred geometry. I can pinpoint it to that time. And I had um, been involved with a a meditation group um, up in Minnesota, and we had an architect in the meditation group named Dennis Holloway who designed a dome for a, for a meditation retreat that we did. And it was a, a Bindu dome based upon oh, uh, principles of, of Hindu, I think, in Islamic design. And it was kind of an amalgamation of that along with Buckminster Fuller's geodesics. And I was drafted as one of the principal builders of these of the dome. And I got very interested in the geometry behind it, and that's what led me into Buckminster, reading Buckminster Fuller. Um and that would have been about nineteen again nineteen seventy three I think we built the the domes in the summer of seventy two anyways, by nineteen eighty I had learned enough about the principles I had gone in back into you know studying Pythagorean mathematics and I began taking courses in um in um geometric drawing and so forth off and on throughout the seventies. And in 1980, I organized a class. And essentially, what I attempted to do in the class was uh, recover some of the Pythagorean or Platonic methods, whereby one, as a student in Plato's Academy, one was instructed in the art of geometric drawing, using only a compass and an unmarked straight edge to um, Essentially, developed the whole edifice of, Eucl- of Euclidean geometry. So that's what I kind of based my first program on was that approach, and it seemed, you know, it seemed to be um, well received. And so I kept doing it um, off and on throughout the 80s and into the 90s. And then I started putting together, um, uh, you know, more elaborate presentations. Started incorporating, you know, slides, and I gathered together many examples of where sacred geometry was used in the world of art and architecture, and where it was found in nature and astronomy and so forth. Um, I began setting up, you know, where I would do a weekend workshop to introduce somebody to the basics and take them through the steps of the elementary drawings into the more elaborate uh, developments of it, and then. Ultimately, you know, getting into the three-dimensional expression of geometry, getting into the um, the Pythagorean, or rather the Platonic solids, as they're known, um, the semi-regular Archimedean solids, and discovering that these could be seen as symbolic representations of fundamental principles throughout the creative universe. Essentially, what I was trying to do was recover. Uh, some of the methodology of the Pythagorean lodges or the Platonic and Neoplatonic academies, um, in my own humble way, if you will. So I, I essentially, you know, still do that to this day. I do uh, organize classes and lectures and so forth, where I try to take people to uh, through the experience of sacred geometry because that's essentially what it is. It's it's an experience that one by engaging the hand the eye and the mind one begins to go through a, a, a basically a process of consciousness change because you begin to reveal to your not only to the outer eye but to the inner eye the fundamental formative patterns of creation and <clears throat> i'm convinced now after studying it for well over 30 years that it provides the key to understanding what i would consider the symbolic language of the ages the symbolic language of the initiates who encoded their understanding of the universe into the patterns of geometry. And then they essentially developed structures, architectural manifestations, and artistic representations where these patterns could be encoded and hence preserved and their knowledge could be preserved. So each geometric form essentially becomes becomes like a a, a, a Carrier, if you will, of tremendous amounts of information. Um, and once you access and integrate these patterns and these forms into your consciousness, you discover that basically the universal language that has been referred to um, in sacred traditions, most uh, probably most well known in our biblical tradition of the um, the building of the tower of Babel and the dispersion of languages and the nations and so forth that idea of a universal language is is much more universal though than just the 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 judeo-christian tradition and i have come to believe that the universal language in effect is geometry um because the relationship of say uh circumference of a circle to its diameter remains constant regardless of who you are what your national background is or what what your demographic background is or you know what religious or spiritual belief you come from that remains constant and so if you were going to try to utilize a language that could transcend um you know linguistic barriers geographical barriers temporal barriers you couldn't find a more suitable or powerful vehicle for that than geometry and I'm convinced that it was consciously and deliberately utilized by you know great masters throughout the ages. And to this day, we now have a whole corpus of of ancient knowledge that is awaiting uh, rediscovery. As soon as we essentially have mastered the rudiments of the the geometric grammar, we will see that this whole world of, of ancient knowledge and information suddenly opens up and reveals itself to us. And I suspect that it goes far beyond the beginnings of recorded history. Because, you see, when we look at the very dawning of recorded history, we find it being utilized. I mean, we look at the first expressions of ancient uh, cities and uh, architecture, for example, in Egypt and Samaria, and they're using advanced principles of geometry. Likewise, in um in uh Neolithic Britain uh the building of the um of the megalithic monuments in Britain of which Stonehenge is the most well known but literally dozens and dozens of others which manifest very sophisticated principles of geometry i mean how do we explain this within the orthodox framework of of historical understanding that at the very beginning of history the first examples of architecture they are using uh, utilizing very sophisticated principles of geometry, uh, integrating geometry with astronomy, uh, and engineering know-how, and so forth. And as has been said by a number of researchers, it almost appears, uh, Graham Hancock, for example, has said this, that when you look at the Egyptian pyramids, it's possible that what we're seeing is not the beginning of an age, but the end of a, of a world age. And when we when we factor in that that human beings have been around on this planet, modern human beings, with our uh, presumably equivalent intelligence to ourselves today, have been around for literally tens of thousands of years, perhaps as perhaps hundreds of thousands of years. We have skeletal remains of modern humans now dating back to over 150,000 years. It, I become I think it becomes uh, fair to ask. Uh, what may have been going on in prehistoric times, and much of what I get into dealing with catastrophism, I think, definitely opens the door to a reevaluation of the earlier periods of human history. Uh, that is the the prehist- what we think of as the prehistoric period uh, prior to the advent of writing, uh, which you know, writing as we think of it emerged with, with cuneiform script in ancient Sumeria about 5,000 years ago. But we have to realize that what we consider historical times is, is, is conservatively only 1 of the time that modern humans have been uh, inhabiting this planet. And I think it becomes a fair question to ask or to speculate on what may have been going on uh, in prehistoric times in terms of cultural development, in terms of scientific development, and so on.
1: And, it, and and the question yeah. of why there is no record,
2: mm-hmm, and why immense. there is no record, yes, and that and that brings us back to the to the issue of catastrophism, and I think this is why it's so important that we begin to integrate our understanding of of human history into Earth history, and understand that Earth history has been essentially two modes of change, that which we have experienced in historical times and that which we know has occurred over geological times. And we certainly know that over geological times there have been enormous uh, global catastrophes that have occurred on a scale um, that we couldn't have even conceived of you know, a generation or two ago. And once one begins to appreciate the scale of the uh, periodic remodelings, if you will, of the global landscape, it doesn't become difficult at all to understand why virtually all traces of former orders of society could have been entirely erased.
1: And, and I think I understand now how why this relates to sacred geometry, because even if uh, most of civilization is wiped out from time to time, these geometric ideas seem to keep blossoming back. They uh, do. And and seemingly faster than you would think they should.
2: Yes, and, and which raises other interesting questions. I mean, you know, was there a concerted effort on the part of certain individuals in prehistoric times to preserve their knowledge of of nature, their knowledge of the universe? Uh, their knowledge of life and, and their knowledge of mathematics and so forth, and and to me, when you begin to look at you know the early Egyptian monuments, particularly the Great Pyramid, as a as a salient example, it just it's obvious. I mean, it's it's egregiously in your face. Um, here is an embodiment of geometry, astronomy, geodesy, uh, encoded information about the size and shape of the Earth. And, you know, the skeptics can quibble all they want and dismiss the numbers, but the numbers are there, you know, and one begins to look at it, uh, you know, sooner or later, at some point, it becomes beyond coincidence that certain relationships that we find in the natural world are embodied in these ancient structures, and which, you know, of course implies that you know, if it's not coincidence, and and it strains one's credibility to try to dismiss many of these examples as coincidence, that somebody had an understanding of these these ideas, somebody had an understanding of of geometrical, sophisticated geometrical relationships, and deliberately designed that into the Great Pyramid. And you know, if you look at the Great Pyramid as a uh, as a structure. As a work of, of engineering, I mean, you couldn't come up with a, a method of, of architecture that could be more enduring than the Great Pyramid. So if you were attempting to encode some kind of a message that was intended to go endure from one world age to another world age, you couldn't come up with a better vehicle than, than what we see on the Giza Plateau in Egypt you know but it, you know for years you know this idea that 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 the um pyramids are just tombs and it's, you know monuments to the egos of pharaohs i mean at this point anyone who looks at the whole phenomena with an open mind can only consider that as, as a ludicrous attempt to avoid the the real implications of what we're seeing there and what that implies for our own understanding of of history
1: i think what you're talking about is a far cry from the folks who count the inches going up into the king's chamber, and each inch is a year. I remember that one being an early pyramid conspiracy theory. And, and what you're talking about is not stuff like that at no,
2: all. No, I, I don't put much credibility in those attempts to to read prophecies into the lengths of the various galleries and so forth. What I'm talking about is just the the absolute demonstrable relationships um, you know for example the 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 height of the pyramid to its base if we if we draw a triangle <clears throat> if we drop a plumb bob if the, imagine that the great pyramid was hollow we drop a plumb bob from its apex to the center of its base we then draw a line from the center of its base out to uh, I mean, the center of the, 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 the square forming the bottom of the pyramid out to the center of one edge of one of the faces, So and then form a triangle whose hypotenuse is now the apothem of the pyramid, from the center of its edge up to its peak down to the center of its base. Essentially, what we have there is a triangle whose uh, hypotenuse is to its base in the golden section. And whose height then becomes the square root of the golden section, and, and this is extremely accurate. <clears throat> now, one could quibble and say that it was just coincidence, but we, you know, it gets into a much, much more evolved development than than that. That that's a mere starting point for understanding the geometry that's that's going on there. And you know, again, it's I my difficulty is attempting to explain something you know in a, in a uh, phone conversation that i use three dimensional models to demonstrate in in my classes but th- there's there's a whole lot going on there that again i would argue you know goes beyond um rationalizing away as as mere coincidence
1: i think that's i think that's extremely fascinating and probably a testament to the kinds of things you could probably learn in your sacred geometry classes. Tell folks how they can get in touch with you because we're running out of time. So tell folks how they can get in touch with you and when the next set of classes are coming up.
2: Well, at present, we've been... I've taken a break from doing any teaching since uh, late 2011. And at present, I'm I'm basically looking for a, a venue right now. I've been trying to set up a... A permanent classroom space for several years but less with many folks I was derailed by the onset of the recession particularly being in the building industry um, you know we saw a considerable diminishment in our business and so many of my grandiose plans that I had in place three and four years ago that I was ready to finance myself have now essentially been on the shelf for a number of years now that business is picking up again um, One of my um, priorities at present is is finding a venue because, you know, when you do a sacred geometry class, I use a lot of props. I have models and and things that I use. And over the years, I've constructed beautiful, elaborate models of, you know, the the Archimedean solids and so forth. What happens is you, you cart them around to all these different places. Eventually, they get beat to death you know, and um, which is a bit frustrating, you know, because things happen, you know.
1: Right. Understandable. So you guys are, so you guys will soon be into a new venue is what you're saying.
2: This is the hope. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're trying to find a space and set up a permanent classroom. I'm also, you know, attempting to put together, revitalize the roadshow. Um, Cause I've done lots of, uh, you know, weekend type, you know, where we'll we'll do a Friday night lecture, and then we'll have a Saturday, Sunday hands-on workshop. You know, at various levels. And I've I at one point had developed a pretty effective roadshow uh, presentation of this material. But again, you know, it it costs money. Through you know, you have to. Uh, I utilize multimedia for that a lot, and um, you know, so I'm I'm ready to get that going again whenever the signals seem to be right. And right now, for the last six months, I've been primarily focused on my my building work. And I've, and I'm, I'll mention this as an aside. I have been developing a a system of uh, architectural design utilizing sacred geometry, combined with a modular system that I think could be very effective. Once I've uh, developed it to uh, the level that I think that it could be taken. Um, The modular would help to keep the cost down, but the sacred geometry would help to uh, incorporate a lot of um, very interesting design possibilities. Um, So that's something that I'm going to be presenting examples of on the sacred geometry website for people to see um, how, how sacred geometry might be utilized in a modern context.
1: Excellent. And my uh, last question on, on how to get in touch with you is, if uh, some of our listeners who are not native to Atlanta want to take classes with with you guys, can they do so on Skype or through like a video um, connection?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm going to refer you to Cameron Wiltshire, who's the webmaster of Sacred Geometry International. And he's been handling a lot of the specifics of that and has been, um, you know, developing... Uh, Lists of prospective students and so forth, so again when when the interest is there, the way I've done it over the years is essentially I will get uh an expression of interest from somebody or some group of people at which point i'll I'll put together a program and then proceed with it um, I have been like I said, I've been laying low basically since the first of two thousand and twelve, um, working on my business, developing these ideas of utilizing sacred geometry in a modern context to design places of uh, residence places of business and so forth places of work um, and so I have not been per- actively pursuing teaching uh, but as soon as the, I start getting the sense that the interest is there an active interest um, I'm sure that I will reciprocate accordingly and you know organize my material and my my multimedia presentations and and go with it again so you know if there's somebody out there that has a uh you know like a group that can essentially cover my my costs and so forth i would be happy to to talk about you know coming and setting up a program maybe doing a a weekend program or you know even more extensive just depending on what what people are interested in
1: well you know well i'd be the first to testify that uh you you definitely give a good presentation, and 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 you can talk, Randall. That's something we've learned on this episode of Out There. <laughs> and uh, I have been really entertained, and I have to say, um, you are our first guest in four years. How do you feel about that?
2: Wow, I'm just um, I'm humbled at the thought of it.
1: Well, I'm uh, we certainly appreciate you being and honored. On. <laughs> well, we certainly appreciate it, Randall. That's going to do it for the time we've got today. Uh, we'll have Randall back on in this week's premium episode. He's going to talk a little bit about uh, Freemasonry and maybe a little about archaeoastronomy as well, which is a topic that we didn't get to today. So uh, check that out. Just click premium on the Out There website, OutThereRadio.net, and you'll be able to find more interview material with Randall. And then if you want to check his website out, which has a ton of stuff on it, Sacred Geometry International. Randall, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. We'll see you next time.
2: Great. Looking forward to it. You have
0: been listening to Out There Radio. For more information or to access premium episodes, please visit us online at outthereradio.net.